developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, are you hyped for all of these War of the Spark Planeswalkers? I am, of course. You told me last week, you were like, surprise, surprise, the Dirtle player is excited for a bunch of Planeswalkers Unlimited, and you're right. I'm very excited for all of these. How, how about you? Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to it. I really like the design of the Uncommon Planeswalkers. I think, you know, it's not going to be a giant slog fest like I was picturing at first. I think there's going to be a lot of cool, close, interesting decisions and a lot of cool gameplay with the Planeswalkers. Well, if there's something that Magic players are very good at accurately doing. It's predicting anything about an upcoming set before playing with it. Yeah, I think we smash it out of the park generally. Can I say that every intro to the podcast, I'm always just on my toes. I'm on the edge of my seat. I have ready to try and lob back whatever you throw at me from the, the first <laughs> intro. I'm always like, what's he going to, what questions are he going to ask me? Is it going to be about sports this time? What are we doing? Yeah, we don't, we don't talk about that ahead of time. We, we no. use Ethan's improv experience. <laughs> so what's going on in the world of Magic, Ben? I know you're not a huge fan of Legacy Cube, but I have been seeing you crushing the streets of Ravnica Allegiance, just scooping up that value that exists on Magic online yeah it's kind of insane it's hard to get ravnica legions drafts to fire on magic online right now i've had to wait over 10 minutes for every draft i've done which sounds Whoa. like you know if you told me when i was 15 years old that i could wait 10 minutes and do a draft whenever i wanted i'd have been thrilled mm -hmm. but you know we've come accustomed to a certain standard and that that's kind of a bummer like i need to start waiting to fire up my stream i think until there's seven players in the queue so I, i've done a few more ravnica legions drafts on magic online i'm up to 58 drafts now 122 and 48, a nice even 20 trophies and bumped up slightly to a 72% win rate. Nice. I have not been playing any Ravnica Legions this week, so I'm, I'm, I'm out. I've been all cube all the time for my limited fix. And has that been going well? Yeah, I haven't been keeping track of my record super closely just because like I am enjoying it as a recreational format and it's been going pretty well. I think folks have been saying that they've felt this iteration of the Legacy Cube to be a little different. You know, they did announce they swapped out over 100 cards this time around, but it still feels pretty similar to Legacy Cubes of old to me. Uh, I rattled off a number of trophies in the past few days on stream. Yesterday, I had uh, three of my four drafts were trophies, which was pretty sweet. Um, having a lot of success with Mono White in particular when that seems to be open. And how about the old Arena Best of One? Have you been doing any of that? No, man, I'm, I'm off it. No M19 for me, I told you. I, I mean, I actually, I, sorry, I did do a few M19 drafts. I went uh, 03, 13, 03, 23, and then I decided to hang it up for life. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is, man. Like, I, it's the, the bots, the gameplay, so that format does not agree with me. That's a bummer. Yeah, how about you? I have done one M19 draft and I seven one. So it welcomed me back with open arms. But I just am not like feeling the desire to play M19 a ton at the moment. Yeah. So yeah, I've not done a ton of drafts. I've only done four or five drafts. I am in full waiting eagerly for War of the Spark mode right now. I think you're gonna have to wait eagerly for a while, right? Because even once War of the Spark releases, it's not going to be the best of one format on arena though that doesn't really bother me because i'm interested in playing the format with people initially um i don't know about you yeah i'm gonna be diving right in on magic online that that war of the spark trailer though just got me all pumped up some some lincoln park in the end that's my jam 
like whenever I'm feeling down or something or I'm I'm in a bad mood, I just like want to go for a drive and crank up some Lincoln Park with the windows down. I love Lincoln wow. Park. Wow. A window into Ben's soul here today. Yeah. So this week on the show, we got a fun episode of sort of like a preview for what we assume will be a lot of the gameplay for War of the Spark. We're going to talk about mini games in Limited and looking at a bunch of the Planeswalkers from that set and sort of how we foresee a lot of those playing out and some experiences we've had with mini games in previous sets as well. But before we get into any of that good stuff, we got some other good stuff to talk about. The Patreon, Ben. It is exploding. It is exploding. Something is in the water this week, and everyone was like, you know what I got to do? I got to go become a patron of the Lords of Limited. They headed on over to patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can give back to the show and get access to that sweet, sweet Discord chat, where I got to say, it is on fire more than usual. There are so many notifications every time I check Discord, and I check it quite often. We've got people trying to break Legacy Cube, trying to break M19 best of one. I try and, you know, ignore all the M19. I scroll through all that nonsense, but, you know, that might appeal <laughs> to some people. We've got people trying to break uh, the spoilers for War of the Spark, checking those out as they come in. We have some higher tier rewards as well for folks who want to give back in various amounts, and we want to make sure that we show some love right back at you the first week that you join. So we want to shout you out on the show. We got a huge list of folks this week so thank you stefan yoris sheriff bart alia josh adam mike alex andrew michael savage core peter john jason matthew zeb mp numbers dominic mark kip and fyodor thank you thank you thank you we really appreciate your support holy patrons batman that is insane and we haven't even hit the best time to sign up yet, which is right when the new set drops. So I would imagine more folks are going to be rolling in in the next two weeks, looking forward to breaking War of the Spark wide open with us at the start of that format. Yeah, these are people just trying to like get good seats. You know, they're trying to sit up front in preparation for what's going to happen in a couple of weeks, which is going to have the Discord explode. And we're also rapidly approaching our last stretch goal of lords of limited merchandise and we've even got a sweet lords of limited logo design in the works so looking forward to hitting that benchmark and getting lords of limited merchandise rolled out to you all yeah if that's something you're interested in some t-shirts bro tanks card sleeves play mats we're gonna try and get all that out to you as soon as we hit that stretch goal for sure so yeah head on over to that patreon it's good for you I did want to just touch on a little bit of the Legacy Cube experience a bit more before we dove into our main topic this week. You know, as I said, uh, it seems very similar to previous iterations of Legacy Cube. Mono White has been strong for me, as well as uh, some mid-range decks with like really strong mana bases, looking at like nine, ten non-basic lands drafted that I end up putting in my main deck. I did recently release a Cardsphere article about an introduction to cube drafting for folks who maybe, you know, like drafting limited. And I know a lot of people out there exist that are like this, that like drafting limited, but feel very daunted by cube. And, you know, maybe they're new to the game. And so it's just way too many cards. They feel overwhelmed. I, I really feel like cube is just the best, most fun way to play magic. And I always want to try and encourage people who are nervous or anxious or hesitant to play to dive in. So if that article is of interest to you, you can head over to uh, Cardsphere's blog and check out that article or maybe share it with a friend who feels those sentiments. And I feel like cube is a really good place for limited players to be able to experience these sort of mini games more often because, you know, in regular limited, we don't get to play with Planeswalkers that often. Sometimes we do have cards that create mini games that aren't Planeswalkers, and we'll talk about some examples of those in a bit, but ways to see Planeswalkers specifically in play, a really good way to get a handle of that in a large fashion is through drafting cube. Yeah, I would agree. The gameplay in cube is complex, and I think it rewards understanding of planeswalkers, how to attack them, how to set up board states where your opponent's planeswalkers aren't impactful, or even anticipating what am I going to do if my opponent plays a planeswalker, because that's fairly likely to happen in cube. Exactly. Yeah. So let's maybe, you know, pump the brakes a little bit and lay everything out here. What do we mean by a mini game, Ben? So a mini game or sub game game within a game is usually created by a single card that diverts both players attention from their usual game plan of just trying to get the opponent's life total to zero to dealing with or protecting if you're the person with it, this single card. So the cards often something that's going to generate multiple cards worth of value over multiple turns, like i.e. a planeswalker, but not necessarily or lead to a really dominant position for the player that's got that 
card, you know, maybe a Planeswalker Ultimate, maybe something like Guardian Project that if it goes unchecked, you're just going to have drawn five or six cards and drown your opponent in card advantage. Something really powerful that's going to warp the way the game is playing out just from usual creature combat, etc. So if you're the player with the minigame card or MGC, as I'm going to try and uh, patent Ooh, here for I the like rest it. of the episode, you are likely to want to slow the game down and play defensively. So if you can protect this card itself or your own life total to ensure you can survive over multiple turns, the value generated by this minigame should give you enough of an advantage to win the game. So could you say that you are an experienced MGC player? I would say so. I would say that's my my favorite way to play Magic is to play the as long as I don't lose, I'm going to win game. And if you're the person on the other side of the battlefield staring down this MGC, you're likely to want to take the position of the aggressor in the matchup. And it's tough, you know, if you don't have board position or if you're not able to deal with the MGC immediately, it's in your best interest to, you know, just try to close the game out as quickly as possible. So maybe you're dealing with that card. Maybe you have to ignore that card if it's a Planeswalker and go with their life total. But something's got to give. You know, if you can't beat that card quickly, you're going to lose. So you have to try to be aggressive. And a lot of times, you know, you end up throwing away multiple resources to defeat one of these MGCs. Right. And so that sort of then plays into that player's game plan of trying to generate multiple cards of value you know if they're able to eat a number of creatures of yours or whatever or a number of removal spells in your quest to remove that mgc well then that's sort of done its job already i do think the biggest thing to keep in mind when playing with or against these cards you have to plan multiple turns ahead this is crucial when you are playing a sort of game breaking card like a planeswalker in regular limited you really want to make sure you're crafting the board state where you're taking the most advantage of it now sometimes you don't have that luxury sometimes you may just have to fire it off and get a little bit of value and realize that it's going to soak up some damage so you know you often think of planeswalkers as like well it's going to draw me a card and then gain me six life or whatever something like that that's like worst case scenario but ideally you're You've already got a board state that can protect it or you're crafting a game where, well, I'm going to do this. My opponent is likely to attack it here. I can block here. It's going to take this amount of damage. Then I can untap and do this. You know, you have to really plan those multiple stages so that you can make sure you're maximizing that card for the amount of value it has because the ceiling for it is so, so high. Right. And not all MCGs are going to be planeswalkers necessarily. We have some that are simple as creatures. So what, what's an example of one of our creatures here? Okay, so uh, we've grabbed some cards from uh, some recent sets here. So with M19 floating around, I think Mentor of the Meek sort of slots in as a creature that is an A-level card. And it's for this exact reason, that it is a minigame card. If built around properly, which is not hard to do in white X decks of M19, you turn a lot of your creatures into cantrips. And so as the player with Mentor of the Meek, you are now incentivized to make the game go long because you know you're going to be able to turn each of your two power creatures into cantrips with one extra mana and your opponent on the opposing side of the battlefield knows that their creatures are not going to cantrip right so they're going to if the game goes long be buried unless you you know flood out they're going to start to get buried in card advantage if each of your creatures that are small are going to be drawing you a card and so both players are immediately incentivized to do something, right? The player with Mentor of the Meek is incentivized to protect that card and make the game go long. They're also now more incentivized to trade off their creatures, right? Because their creatures, other than Mentor, are essentially replacing themselves. The opponent on the opposite side of the battlefield is incentivized, firstly, to try and kill Mentor, right? If they can, hopefully you can just fire off a removal spell before anything gets out of control. But even once one creature is able to cantrip and draw a card off of itself from the mentor ability, now you're down a card even if you go to kill that mentor. So the quicker you can kill that, the better. And if you can't, what's your other recourse? Well, you've got to try and end the game quickly because you know, unless you've got something up your sleeve, that you're going to lose the game if this mentor goes unchecked. Absolutely agree. Another one we've got here from Ravnica Allegiance is Judith the Scourge Diva. So when Judith is in play, creature combat just gets super messy for the defender with the person that doesn't have the Judith. So this this buffs all your other creatures, gives them an additional power, turning them into more relevant threats. And then when they die, they get a ping something They can go to any target. And that just makes blocking an absolute nightmare. You know, if you're the defending player, Judith is something that you're going to want to kill 
as quickly as possible. And if you can't, you're going to have to really work to mitigate the damage that Judith can do. You're going to have to think a lot harder about combat math, blocks, whether you want to kill creatures, whether you maybe want to let them hit you if the person with the Judith is trying to be aggressive and try to crack them back. There's just a, a ton of possibilities. It's not quite as game warping as Mentor of the Meek because it's not providing card advantage. But still, once Judith comes down, the game is different until Judith is off the battlefield. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. And, and I do think... Judith has a sort of snowball effect because if your life total is low at all, if you're in this messy creature combat situation, you know, you can't really afford to let many creatures through because once you do, each of those creatures just becomes, well, I can just chump attack and then ping face if their life total gets low enough. You know, Judith really does warp how you think about combat until she's off the battlefield. Right. And I think another interesting consideration is when there are creatures like this, once you've seen them, maybe in game one or game two, after sideboarding, you know, first of all, you're siding in any cards that you have that can deal with that creature. And then you know that you have to save removal from Enter the Meek or Judith. You know, if there's another creature that's killing you, maybe you're going to have to take nine, 12 damage off of some stupid three, two, because you have to save your one removal spell for Mentor of the Meek or for Judith. So you need to try to plan ahead games down the road too through sideboarding and timing of when to use your removal once you've seen these creatures that are this powerful and as the person that's playing those creatures you know mentor the meek maybe you're playing a blue white deck maybe you don't slam mentor on turn three maybe you wait till you know turn six to play mentor when you can hold up mentor and a cancel to protect it so forcing your opponent to have two removal spells to deal with it you can go pretty deep with these cards that are this game warping or making sure you can go mentor two drop pay one mana to draw a card off of it. So you're like, well, even if they deal with it, I've already got my cards worth of value from it. Right, certainly. There are also enchantments that I think bring to mind this idea of mini game cards. Legion's Landing from Ixalan is, uh, you know, sort of a pretty big standard role player these days. And I think even in Limited really had a lot of game warping presence. This card encourages the opposing player to keep the board clear, which is like a lot of MGCs. Like if we think about Judith, I mean, Mentor sort of has a reverse uh, effect on the game, but something like Judith or cards like Planeswalkers, you know, you're really incentivized if you're the player with that card to clog the board to protect it. And if you're the player playing against that card to keep the board clear so you can attack it or keep the board clear so you can push through it to end the game. Legion's Landing, you know, the game plan is I got to get three creatures on the board. I got to attack with all three of them. And then I flip this thing. And this is probably going to generate enough value over the course of the game if the game goes long enough to take it over. So this player is very incentivized to make maybe even one, two, or even three chump attacks sometime to flip Legion's Landing, depending on how much they anticipate it will take over the game if the game goes long enough. Something like Dovin's Acuity could also be considered an MGC. As the defending player, you know, if you're if you're the person with a Dovin's Acuity, obviously you want to turtle up, churn through your deck, cast your Queer the Mines. As the aggressor, do you try to race the life gain? Do you have enchantment removal that you try to target Dovin's Acuity with? Are you trying to, once you've seen it, hold up counter magic to counter the Dovin's Acuity to prevent them from chaining the triggers together? Do you try to attack their graveyard to prevent the clear the mine looping? There's there's multiple different ways to try to attack Dovin's Acuity, but that card, once it comes down, if the player has enough instance in their deck, the game is a different game because they're going to get so much value over the course of the game going along. Yeah, I want to make a point here because I think we're going to be doing this a lot when we are discussing these cards and when we start to look at the spoilers from War of the Spark. These cards are going to pose a lot of questions and that's what we're doing when we discuss them. And the answers to those questions will be different based on the matchup, based on the situation of the game. So we're not going to be able to say, well, when you see this card or a card like this, you want to do X, Y, Z. Because it's not always going to be the case, you know? Sometimes Dovin's Acuity is going to be too slow and the opposing player is going to just steamroll that deck and the Dovin's Acuity player isn't going to have the time to set up their life gain and set up their blockers or whatever, set up their game plan in an efficient way. And other times it'll be way too far swung in the other end of the spectrum and the Dovin's Acuity player is just so far ahead that even that card is probably not even the most relevant. So just I think asking these questions, being prepared to ask these questions when you're on both sides of the battlefield of this kind of card is important. So looking at a card like Simic Ascendancy as well, you know, this card I was not super high on in Ravnica Allegiance, but this card can morph from a game about creature size getting out of control 
to eventually a game where this alternate win condition on Simic Ascendancy is the clearest path to victory. And so I've had only a handful of games in my Ravnica Legion's lifetime, but I have had a handful of games where I've faced this card down and at about 10 counters on Simic Ascendancy, both my opponent and I realized this game is no longer about their big creatures. You know, we've gone to turn 15, the board is now clogged, and now what am I supposed to do facing down a bunch of giant creatures, you know, which they can't really attack into my board with, but they can just keep sinking six mana a turn into adding counters and getting that alternate win condition. Right. It's sort of like a planeswalker ticking up towards ultimate, except you can't even attack it. Exactly. Which is what makes so many of these like artifacts and enchantments even tougher, I think, sometimes than planeswalkers to deal with. Yeah, and if you're in the M19 best of one queues right now, you are either thrilled when you have patient rebuilding in your deck or you're groaning when your opponent plays it on the other side of the battlefield. This is a super game warping card that forces you to try to race it if you're the opposing player. So patient rebuilding says three blue blue enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep, your opponent mills three for each land they put into the graveyard, you draw that many cards. So by itself, it's milling your opponent very quickly and it's providing you with extra resources to defend yourself while patient rebuilding just single-handedly wins the game. So if your opponent sticks this and you're not super far ahead, you are highly incentivized to try to close the game out in a hurry, and it's really tough to do against the extra cards that your opponent is getting. Right, you have such a small window. It's like one or two turns before they've generated so much card advantage that it's just going to be too late. I think Ill-Gotten Inheritance is maybe a small MGC, but a minigame card nonetheless, because it's sort of in the right shell. Once it hits the battlefield, you know, we've talked about this on, on previous episodes when looking at this card, but once it hits the battlefield, it provides this sort of threat of activation effect as a lava axe. So your opponent, if you've played the Ill-Gotten Inheritance, already has to play the game like they have four less life than they do. So you're already sort of warping the game with that effect, that ultimate effect of cracking it before you even do that, because the game is playing towards that effect being relevant. Yeah, absolutely agree. And it's just attacking from a unique angle, too. It's difficult to interact with, right? A lot of these MGCs, especially in the enchantment artifact realm, do something very impactful to the game and are tough to interact with. So they force you to try to close out the game. And once Iggy hits the battlefield, you have to kill your opponent before you're just there's this you know, sand timer that starts running out and you got to do something before all the sand runs out or ill-gotten inheritance just kills you. Exactly. Moving on to artifacts, speaking of, Helm of the Host is bonkers from Dominaria Draft. So this is an equipment, costs four to cast and five to equip, which is a super hefty equip cost. But once you do, at the beginning of combat on your turn, you're making a copy of the creature of whatever it's attached to that has haste and sticks around permanently, which is totally busted. So this mini game sort of kind of happens even when you go to equip Helm of the Host. So one of the best ways to try to beat Helm of the Host and or other equipment that's really powerful, because generally the equip cost of equipment goes up with the power level of the equipment. So you can try to interact at instant speed with the creature when they go to equip. So maybe you bounce the creature, maybe you kill it with an instant speed removal spell. And a lot of times that single handedly can allow you to beat the equipment. You know, so there's sort of this mini game. Can I get this equipment equipped successfully? And then once they do, then you're in trouble as the defending player. You're still hoping for instant speed removal or bounce to make them pay the equip cost again. But ideally, you know, you don't want your opponent making, obviously, free creatures with Helm of the Host. Yeah, I've been sort of using this term a lot, playing like control mirrors in Arena Best of One Standard or playing control mirrors in Legacy Cube of staring contests because it often is this sort of like who's going to blink first, who lets their guard down and decides to tap out for something first is often the person who's going to get punished first, you know? And so Helm of the Host definitely plays out that way where the person who has it doesn't want to go to equip it into, into open, open mana. mana. Because right. if they do and get punished, it's such a huge negative tempo swing that that in and of itself can probably lose them the game. But on the other side, the person who's playing against it can't really afford to tap out to let the person with Helm of the Host know that all's clear and they can go ahead and, and get this on. Because once it goes off for two turns, the game is probably over. You've just again, you've generated way too much value from one thing. Another equipment from Dominaria that was really tough to deal with was Forebear's Blade. This was three mana for an equipment, three to equip. It gave plus three, plus O, oh, and Vigilance and Trample. But the kicker here, 
and kicker was in Dominaria, so I don't quite mean that, but <laughs> pun intended. The, like, pun intended. Uh, the, the kicker here was that when the equipped creature died, you got to move the equipment on to another creature you controlled for free. So you couldn't even do any sort of shenanigans with like destroying the creature in combat because then even before damage, the equipment would move over to another theoretically attacking creature that that opponent controlled. So again, you had this sort of staring contest. You were hoping you had bounce or exile effects or ways to deal with the equipment itself. This card, once it hit the battlefield, the game became about that. And that's sort of the theme of these MGCs. Mini game cards are cards that when they hit the battlefield, both players' eyes are on that card. Either how do I maximize that card if I own it, or how do I mitigate the pain I'm going to feel from that card if I'm facing it. That is very accurate describing Forebear's Blade. Yeah. Sagas from Dominaria were also another really cool example of mini games. So Song of Freilis was a saga, one in a green, and when it entered the battlefield, its first chapter was creatures you control can tap to add one man of any color. Second chapter was also the same. And then on the turn when it hit its third chapter, creatures you control got a plus one, plus one counter, indestructible, trample, and vigilance. So you got this huge swing. And so you were trying to set up with this card to play it to allow you to ramp into other threats. And then on that third turn, get in a huge attack for free. And if you were the opponent, you knew this gigantic attack was coming. So you were trying to wait until it went off and maybe use bounce, maybe use removal with the trigger on the stack to try to make it so that that third chapter was as non-impactful as possible, which was difficult to do if your opponent had gone wide. This was one of, I think, the most explicit examples of both players having to plan out multiple turns ahead. I remember when I had Song of Freilis, you were always trying to map out, okay, I'm going to play it on this turn, and then the following turn, I'll have these two creatures in play, and I'll be able to play this card and then Sapperling Migration, and then on the next turn, I'll be able to swing out with all these. And then your opponent is thinking, okay, do I want to use my removal spell now? to kill their creature to stop them from being able to use it to cast an additional creature. So maybe I keep the board slightly clear from them casting multiple things for that third chapter, or am I waiting until the third chapter, or am I hoping to draw my Invoke the Divine? Like There was just a lot of stuff that both players, I think, once this hit the battlefield, had to think about for the next two turns. For sure. Another card that I think everyone's familiar with from either Limited or Standard, if you played in Dominaria, The Eldest Reborn. I remember when uh, Semulin, uh, Travis Sowers, pointed out to me that this sort of plays out a lot like Liliana of the Veil. So it's a four and a black saga comes into play. Target opponent sacrifices a creature or planeswalker. Then the next chapter is they discard a card. And then the last chapter is you get to put a creature or planeswalker from any graveyard onto the battlefield. So this was a really hard card to deal with, but it mostly became about if you were facing it down from the opposing side was trying to keep the graveyard clear of anything strong to reanimate. So if there was already something there, there wasn't much you could do, but you really were then incentivized to, okay, can I afford to over the next two combat steps or one combat step to not trade off my best creature? Can I afford to discard this spell rather than this six drop creature so that they don't get to reanimate it? It really, I think, forced you to ask a number of questions about how you saw the next few turns playing out. And we're going to get into Planeswalkers here. We're going to warm up a little bit with some Planeswalkers we're familiar <laughs> with, and then we're going to get into the new uncommon Planeswalkers from War of the Sparks. So if we're thinking Legacy Cube, which is out right now, uh, one of the more powerful Planeswalkers in the cube is Ashiok Nightmare Weaver. One blue-black comes into play with three loyalty. Her plus two is to exile three cards from the opponent's deck, and then if creatures are exiled, they go underneath her. Her minus X is to minus any number of counters equal to the CMC of one of those creatures to put it into play on your side of the battlefield. And then I never know what Planeswalker ultimates do. You sure don't. Minus 10, exile all cards from target player's graveyard and hand. Never going to happen. You're going to deck the opponent with a plus two before you ever want to do that. Have you ever ultimated Ashiok? I'm sure I have. I have not. I am certain because I don't know what it does. I believe you've never ultimated a single planeswalker. <laughs> That's not based true. on my conversations with you over the past week. That's not true. I've definitely ultimated a Liliana the Veil and done it totally wrong. I think <laughs> there was something because tricky going you just on picked there. The wrong you picked the wrong pile. I think so. Yeah, I have vague recollections of trauma. I think you pick the pile that they sacrifice. 
rather than pick the pile they keep or something like that. Yeah, I, I've been involved in some unfortunate Liliana the Veil ultimates. That is for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. One of the interesting things about Ashiok, I think, and I think this is something to take away as we look at the 36 Planeswalkers from War of the Spark, is it's cheap and will have a high loyalty the turn it comes into play. A three mana, five loyalty Planeswalker is very hard to deal with, even if your board has no other permanents on it. It's very unlikely that your opponent is going to be able to kill it that turn if it comes down on turn three. And so I think, you know, we often think about Planeswalkers as like, well, can they protect themselves? And of course, we're going to see a lot of them that are uncommon and even rare in this format that cannot, but it's sort of protecting itself in a way with its own high loyalty, you know? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the following turn, you know, assuming she's not dead, can minus to put hopefully a creature from the opponent's deck onto the battlefield. Or if the opponent doesn't have creatures in their deck, they are going to have a rough time beating Ashiok on turn three. Or, you know, if they've hit it for two, then you get to plus two again, it goes up to five. And then now you're with three or four mana and maybe you can play something that can protect it, you know? Yeah, plus two just does go a long way towards protecting itself. Exactly. I think Dovin Grand Arbiter, you know, we talked about this uh, a bit before as like it's a really strong planeswalker but it's not like a hugely game warping planeswalker in the way that some others for limited have been the fact that you sort of need to think about when you're going to deploy it and the fact that sometimes it's going to come down and maybe you're just going to make a couple thopters and be happy with that and maybe sometimes it's going to come down and quickly snowball and you're going to get up to that minus seven ultimate that ben has no idea what it does no, I do. You look at the top 10 cards of your library and you pick three spells of the 10 and put them in your hand, right? I think it's just three cards, but yeah, good for you. All right, never mind. Huh. Point for Ben. That's because Dovin actually gets to its ultimate sometimes and it's yeah. relevant when it does. That's why I know what that one does. <laughs> you do have that Sherlock Holmes brain. Just nothing that doesn't fit into your life is out. Doesn't need to be in there taking up space. That is 100% correct. So... Looking towards the new Planeswalkers from War of the Spark, what are we going to start to do? How are we going to piece together the experiences we have from previous MGCs and look at the different power level of the multiple rarities of Planeswalkers we're going to see in this new set? I think the most important thing you're going to try to evaluate when facing the new Planeswalkers, especially the uncommon ones or the ones with static abilities, is how relevant the static ability is to the current game state, or just in general, you know, when you're evaluating a card, and how powerful the minus abilities are. So whether or not you need to kill them right away, and how quickly you need to kill them, and if you can afford to leave them hanging around at one loyalty. And I think the difficult thing about this is it's going to be largely on a case-by-case -case basis, and it's going to take an analysis of the board state and the cards you have in your deck and the cards you suspect or know that the opponent has in their deck. So I think we should just quickly outline the sort of general rules for all the Planeswalkers in the set for folks who maybe don't know. I imagine everyone does, but all the Planeswalkers are going to have a static ability on them. The uncommon Planeswalkers will only have a minus ability. The rare Planeswalkers are going to have a plus and a sort of ultimate-ish kind of thing that might be a minus a large number or small number, whatever. So they're both going to have a minus and a plus. And then the Mythics are going to have a plus, a minus, and a sort of classic ultimate, like a big minus. And I think the thing about the uncommon Planeswalkers is, is that the fact that they can't plus on their own, now there is proliferate in the set, as we know from some cards that have been spoiled already, like the Lords of Limited official preview cards, looking at that new thrumming bird for sure. If there's proliferate around, you know, there's ways to uptick Planeswalkers for sure, but the uncommon Planeswalkers have no way to do that on their own. And so I feel like I'm less incentivized to take out those Planeswalkers or try and divert energy that is unnecessary or that's going to cost me resources to try and take out those uncommon planeswalkers because it often feels like they're going to be able to tick down twice. And so if they've already done their thing when they come into play, it's hard for me to want to invest multiple resources in trying to prevent them from down ticking one more time, you know? Right. So I think another corollary to add on here as far as the planeswalkers, we have a tweet from Watsy staff about sort of how the colors all sort of can reuse their planeswalkers. So they ran into this problem with the uncommon planeswalkers where the static ability wasn't super useful anymore. So they gave each color sort of the tools to reuse or repurpose the planeswalkers that were stuck on awkward loyalty numbers or were stuck on one loyalty. So green and white both have the ability to proliferate onto the planeswalkers. Blue gets to flicker and bounce low loyalty planeswalkers. And then black and red can sacrifice planeswalkers once they've outlived their usefulness. 
And Black, and I know you have this later in the show notes, but it feels like a great time to talk about it. Black has a raise dead effect that can bring back planeswalkers and creatures from the graveyard. Right. So there's this question of when you're playing against an opponent that's playing black of do I kill the planeswalker that's at one loyalty and risk them rebuying it and another creature or do you just leave it hanging around at one loyalty and maybe they're playing one of these other colors that can proliferate onto it. You can sort of put this opponent into a catch 22. But I think certainly once you've seen that card that can raise dead planeswalkers, you're trying to leave them hanging around on one loyalty. Right. I mean, so you're just having to weigh that like value of do I risk them being able to rebuy it from the graveyard versus how much is the static ability impacting the game? Right. And I think, you know, just generally looking at planeswalkers, I think planeswalkers reward the controller of the planeswalker or the MGC. Like, I think we can just think of all planeswalkers sort of as an MGC in this sense, sort of Mm -hmm. for being either at parity on the board or being ahead on the board. So if you're as the defender trying to make your opponent's planeswalkers worse, I think you should be vying really hard for board presence throughout the game. And I think that's something that's not, I don't generally find myself thinking about in games of magic, but in Hearthstone, if you've ever played Hearthstone, that's crazy important to the game of Hearthstone. It really rewards having consistent control of the battlefield. Hearthstone limited, that is. I played almost no Hearthstone constructed because the attacker in Hearthstone gets to choose where the damage goes. There isn't any blocking. There's this thing called taunt where, you know, if your opponent controls a thing with taunt, you have to kill that first. But once that's off the battlefield and you're attacking, you attack your opponent's creatures and you attack your opponent's face. Like you can choose to ignore their creatures and go face or you choose which of their creatures are going to die. The attacker has the advantage in Hearthstone, whereas in MTG, I think the defender has the advantage, you know, pretty consistently. So I would expect, you know, War of the Spark to reward control of the battlefield much more than any other set we've seen since there are so many planeswalkers. Like I can remember in Hearthstone, there was this card cost one mana called Zombie Chow that was a 2-3, and 2-3 was way above stats for one crystal. And, you know, it had some punishment, like when it died, your opponent gained five life. But you didn't care about that because it lets you kill your opponent's two drop and then your two drop was left. It just lets you snowball and get ahead. So I think you're going to be incentivized to start curving out early and have ways to pressure your opponent's planeswalkers. Because if you have, you know, the the dominant position on the battlefield, all of your opponent's planeswalkers are much worse than they would be otherwise. I am hoping, and so far I feel like it might be, that this format is going to be similar to Dominaria and that these uncommon planeswalkers are going to play out similarly to those uncommon sagas that were strong. You know, I think I think the legendary and saga thing is going to feel sort of similar to the amount of planeswalkers we're going to see. And that was a format where we were like, yeah, it's not a fast format, but two drops are important. It's important to affect the board early. And I think that is going to happen here because I think things are going to snowball and I think it's going to be important to be planning i mean i feel like i'm going to say this so many times this episode but planning multiple turns ahead right and i think planning on what's going to happen if your opponent plays a planeswalker because you can assume that's going to happen with a fair amount of regularity Mm -hmm. and i think you know one of the things just when we're looking at these planeswalkers especially the uncommon ones and how they're going to play out is do they have a way to protect themselves some of them do some of them don't and i think that's going to drastically change how they impact the game what are some sorts of things that you feel like are going to go up in value if this set is sort of based around planeswalkers? I mean, I think there's a possibility, it seems unlikely, that, you know, the planeswalkers aren't like as warping for limited as we think they are, but that would seem like a pretty big design fail. So I think let's assume that it's going to be that case. So what things are you thinking about as going up in value if that is the case? Evasive creatures are certainly going up in value. So then your opponent doesn't get rewarded for their board presence or clogging the battlefield. So if you have something that's unblockable, you know, one of our spoiler cards uh, made a creature unblockable. Things like that are going to go up in value if your opponent's got planeswalkers. Flying certainly uh, is going to go up in value if you have a flying creature and your opponent doesn't. All their planeswalkers are definitely 100% worse. And creatures with haste, you know, if your opponent's planning, okay, you know, they've got this creature on the battlefield, I've got these two creatures to block it. So even if they use a removal spell, I've still got one more creature to block it and my planeswalker is going to be fine. And if you can change that opponent's plan by, boom, throwing a haste creature down on the battlefield and throwing off all that planning they did a couple turns in advance to make sure they had enough blockers, even if you had a removal spell, you know, you can throw off their game and maybe get that planeswalker off the battlefield for free. One of the worst feelings as the player with a planeswalker is, you know, let's say throwing back to Ashiok, you know, we're talking cube, your Ashiok doesn't come down on turn three, maybe it comes down on turn five, you Ashiok, you plus two, and you've got some creatures on the battlefield to protect your Ashiok. And then all of a sudden, your opponent plays a Thundermall Hellkite, five, five flying haste, and just kills your Ashiok for free and is left. It's like giving your opponent 
a two for one. If your planeswalker doesn't have a relevant impact on the game and they can kill it before you've, you know, made up the card advantage from playing the planeswalker. Yeah, I think the haste creature thing was something that I knew from cube because I, you know, I, you think about dragons as planeswalker killers in cube like thunder, my hellkite or Glorybringer or Scargan hellkite. But in regular limited, I think of haste as generally kind of poopy because it's usually on like small red creatures and everyone knows how I feel about those. But I think that's <laughs> a really smart thing to think about as we look at the full spoiler rounding out here in the coming week. If we're looking out for those cards and how they are going to match up against certain planeswalkers, I think that's a, a definitely a thing to look out for. And I certainly think removal is going to go up in value as well, too. Being able to remove your opponent's blockers to pressure their planeswalkers. I mean, the board state and ways to impact the board state are going to be critical if you're trying to protect your own planeswalkers and or your opponents playing planeswalkers. I think it's going to be way more about board control than Magic's ever been for limited. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And we're going to do something we have never done on the history of Lords of Limited. We're going to talk about a handful of cards from the upcoming set before the crash course, Ben. I'm excited. Let's get into it. All right. So we're going to look at some Planeswalkers here and just sort of look at them under this lens of mini games. We're going to look at the first one, the Wanderer. This is three and a white for a five loyalty legendary Planeswalker. Static ability is prevent all non-combat damage that would be dealt to you and other permanents you control. And it has a minus two ability of exile target creature with power four or greater. So you're going to see a lot of these uncommon Planeswalkers are going to have ways to leave the loyalty at one. So you have the option to have that static ability stick around so a lot of these like you're gonna see a lot of five loyalty that have minus two minus two and then it's gonna stick around on one and this is an example of that so if you're staring down the wanderer i think the static ability is largely irrelevant unless you yourself are red and a lot of your removal is damage based then the static ability is a fairly large problem and you're probably going to need to get the wanderer off the battlefield and the minus two is only going to be as good against your deck as the number of creatures you have with power four or greater on the battlefield or in your deck. So, you know, if you're the if you're the player with the Wanderer, you're trying to ideally save this until your opponent has at least one creature with power four or greater on the battlefield. And then you sort of have an insurance policy if you can keep the Wanderer around maybe against their next creature with power four or greater. But honestly, the Wanderer looks more like a sideboard card to me than anything. Right. I mean, so this sort of equates most to like a sorcery speed smite the monstrous or bring to trial right that's sorcery speed costs one more mana than bring to trial does but you can do it twice so it looks like that with like some minor upside in the prevent all non-combat damage but i don't imagine that being quite relevant in limited you're not really often getting burned out in limited so i would really think of this as a sideboard card yeah and i think what you said is right like you want to treat this like the spell you're not just like sticking this on the battlefield with no targets to remove Right. Next one we want to take a look at is Jace, Wielder of Mysteries. This is a rare one blue, blue, blue for a four loyalty planeswalker. Static ability, if you would draw a card while your library has no cards in it, you win the game instead. Plus one, target player puts the top two cards of their library into their graveyard, draw a card, and minus eight, never going to remember what that does, draw seven <laughs> cards. Then if your library has no cards in it, you win the game. So you think you're never going to ultimate this unlimited? Um, I'm going to try. Eh, I probably will know what it does because it's kind of a, you know, what's the what's the term? Oh, an achievement. Yeah, like an achievement. It's like a, the it's like a white whale. <laughs> isn't that isn't that a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, it's, it'll be a white whale thing for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to obviously turtling up with a card like this, but it, it mostly just seems like a card advantage engine that can be attacked. I think the static ability and this ultimate are largely both irrelevant. You're really just using this as a, can I, you know, it's sort of a means to an end. I, maybe you're going to win the game with milling yourself or whatever, but you're most likely just using it as a way to draw cards and hopefully you can protect it so that if it, the game goes long enough, you're going to just win with raw card advantage. Right. And sort of dangerous if you're targeting yourself with the mill, you know, because then it becomes if your opponent can kill Jace or bounce Jace when you only have a card or two cards left in it, you're not going to be winning the game. You're going to be losing the game. So I think worth noting that Jace doesn't protect himself. So you're going to want to try to play this on the stable board and you're going to have you're not necessarily going to be able to slam this on turn four. If you're behind, it's going to be tough to play Jace on turn four, not to mention that there's triple blue in the cost. Right. Yeah, that's def definitely a consideration. Next up, we're going to look at Davriel, Rogue Shadow Mage. This is two and a black for a three loyalty uncommon planeswalker. At the beginning of each opponent's upkeep, if that player has one or fewer cards in hand, Davriel, Rogue Shadow Mage deals two damage to them, and it's minus one target player discards a card. 
So static ability is pretty easy to blank if you want to. So I was actually watching some uh, modern and uh, SCG coverage today. And uh, one, Tom Ross was playing eight rack, which is a deck that plays four copies of the rack and four copies of a card that I'm not going to remember, but was in, I believe, Return to Ravnica. It's like a single mana enchantment in black that has this ability if your opponent has one or fewer cards that deals the damage to them on your upkeep. And so this sort of like has that effect on it, but it's fairly easy to blank and limited. You know, you can probably either decide, well, I can take the two damage or I can just make sure I keep two cards or more in my hand. Yeah, Davriel's tough. I mean, the, the obvious comparison is to Mind Rot. So two and a black target opponent discards two cards. Davriel, you're going to have to cast. And then obviously you're going to minus one the turn you cast it. And then you're going to have to be able to protect Davriel to get your opponent to discard the next turn. But they're going to know it's coming, so they're going to be able to plan for the second discard a little bit better. And if you're able to protect this for multiple turns, your opponent's discarding three cards potentially, which is great. But then if this is stuck around on the battlefield that long, it might be late in the game before you can set up enough defense. I think this is risky without any way to protect itself if you're the person casting Davriel. I think if you're the person casting Davriel, the ideal is to like two drop play this you protect it and then you're playing you're trying to plan the game where you get to down tick this three times i think that's what you're hoping to do with this you're trying to get the like mind rot plus you're not trying to do mind rot and then make your opponent lose two life because if you can get three cards out of your opponent's hand from this that's a lot of value for an uncommon i agree but that seems so tough to set up i think that's tough to set up but i think it's going to be more common than not but again so do you think this is better or worse than mind rot better than mind rot i think this looks worse than mind rot to me yeah it's it's so interesting because i'm thinking about like mind rot is not something you want to play on turn three right but this is sure but are you gonna but you have but to do that you have to have a two drop that you're gonna protect it with and if your opponent played two drop three drop it just seems such a disaster for you if this comes down you make them discard a card and then it dies yeah that's not the best that's not the best at all. I agree. This is not a terrible top deck, whereas Mind Rot is something to consider. That's fair. Yeah, be interesting to see how this this card plays out. But this, again, I think is a perfect example of something where both players have to plan out multiple turns, right? You're already talking about like, well, if you're the player with the card, you have to plan for XYZ. And if you're the player playing against this card, you see the discard coming. And so either you're killing the Planeswalker or you're being like, well, I can just hold these lands and discard them because they don't make any difference to me. And I'm sort of blanking Davriel anyway, that sort of thing. Moving on to Obnixilis, the Hate Twisted. This is three black black for a five loyalty Planeswalker. Static ability whenever an opponent draws a card. Obnixilis, the Hate Twisted, deals one damage to that player. And the minus two is destroy target creature. Its controller draws two cards which looks terrible at face value. But, you know, the static ability is going to pressure your life total if your opponent is using the minus ability. And if your opponent is using the minus ability, they're probably using it to remove blockers to try to kill you with curving out. You know, Obnixilis looks like it belongs very much in an aggressive deck where you're going to try to use the minus two to deal damage to your opponent and remove a key creature before they have a chance to leverage their card advantage that they're getting off Obnixilis against you. So this is wrong of me to think about. I'm only thinking about the minus two targeting my own creatures. I'm just thinking this is like multiple <laughs> altars reaps. That seems very niche to me. Why would I want my opponent to draw cards? I want to be the one drawing cards. I no, love drawing this is, cards. This is definitely designed to kill your opponent's last blocker or the, the critical creature that's blanking your team. You know, that's what I see when I look it up, Nixilis. Weird. Do you really not see that? I mean, I'd see that that's what you're supposed to do, but that is not how I read this card. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yeah, it's very. But I do think that that duality does exist here. But I don't know what the archetypes look like. But if there is some sort of like black control deck, I also think this card sort of goes up in value in that sense. If there are like luminous bonds or capture sphere effects in this format, which we don't quite know of yet. But yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting. This static ability is just sort of like ill-gotten inheritance in a way like even if you're not using the activated abilities this is one where if it sticks around it's still going to be doing some work right that's fair to point out that obnixils can target your own creature so then it has also has a little more value if you're not way far ahead so it's not it's probably a way better card than i was giving it credit for yeah i mean i just think that there there's a lot of flexibility there and i think it's it's pretty strong i think for an uncommon again five mana five loyalty it's only ticking down but you could just be like all right five mana five loyalty i can protect this i don't want to use its ability i'm just going to sit back and let this static do its work right which is possible 
Next up, we're going to take a look at Tybalt Rakish Instigator. It's two and a red for a five loyalty planeswalker at uncommon. The static ability is your opponents can't gain life. Probably not relevant. And a minus two, create a 1-1 red devil creature token with when this creature dies, it deals one damage to any target. Now, Ben, I know that you think Footlight Fiend is like a B plus. So what about a Planeswalker that makes two Footlight Fiends? Slam Dunk A. Yeah, this is an A. I don't know how why this is so pushed at Uncommon. This, but to be fair, in all seriousness, this is a very strong card. So the, the minus two ability is good. Will allow you to protect tybalt with these devil fiends and is going to stick around at one loyalty with maybe the potential to proliferate or sacrifice tybalt that's a lot of value on one card for three mana i think leaving this around on one loyalty is going to be dangerous and i think these devils are going to do some serious work i agree so there was a card from i think it was shadows over innistrad that was three and a red instant speed and it made two of these creatures and I just think there's a lot of value for three mana. Yes, it's over multiple turns for making two of these. And I think what you're the point you're making about, yeah, these creatures protect Tybalt themselves, right? It's like making it's three mana make a two one, essentially, but with the upside of being able to make a second two one the following turn and have the stick around. And if you can proliferate onto it to make a third one, I think this is going to be a difficult to deal with on turn three and not the worst on top deck, you know? But again, it's gonna be hard facing down this card to deal with it right it's not like it's not such like an mgc right that's what i was just thinking it's just a good card I think. it's just a good card yeah that's it doesn't feel like it's game warping it's just like this is good value i don't feel like as the opponent i'm not like oh no i need to stop them from making another footlight fiend it's just well i guess they're just gonna get two of these right next up we've got arlen voice of the pack for green green for a seven loyalty uncommon planeswalker each creature you control that's a wolf or werewolf enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it. And Arlen's minus two is to create a two two green wolf creature token. So essentially those are going to be entering the battlefield as a three three as long as Arlen's on the battlefield. So it has the potential to over the course of three turns make three 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 wolves for six mana, which is pretty powerful. Yeah, so this is I think, you know, this is expensive. It's six mana, but high loyalty I think it is going to be hard on that board state that you described where planeswalkers are best on a board state where you're at parity or ahead as the player playing the MGC, the mini game card. I think this is going to be hard for your opponent to deal with effectively. Right. And Arlen definitely is an MGC because you are highly incentivized to try to prevent your opponent from getting those next two three threes. It feels like if you make all three, you're going to be ahead by some sort of significant margin. Next up, we've got Angrath, Captain of Chaos. This is two Rakdos Rakdos for a five loyalty planeswalker at uncommon. Creatures you control have menace, and it has a minus two to amass two. So this is the uh, mechanic that either puts two plus one plus one counters on an army you control, and if you don't control an army, you create a zero zero black zombie army creature token first and then put the counters on it. So it makes a 2-2 or adds two counters to your army token. Yeah, this is a powerful card. The creatures you control have menace is super relevant. So I like Angrith as maybe like enabling a surprise attack to kill an opposing planeswalker if you've already got a battlefield presence. Yeah. And then just similar to Arlen, you know, is an MGC in the sense that if you're the opposing player and your opponent plays Angrath, you're going to want to try to prevent them from getting that second 2-2. And again, I think this is another really dangerous one to leave around on one loyalty menace is a pretty strong force for an opponent that's able to attack in a game of limited right i mean in theory this is a this is like a four mana four four with menace that gives all your other creatures menace or it's like a four mana two two that's then traded off and so then it's like you make another two two like this is a really good rate and i think menace is particularly relevant in this oops all planeswalkers format Next up, we're taking a look at Kaya, Bane of the Dead. Three Orzov, Orzov, Orzov hybrid mana for another seven loyalty uncommon planeswalker. Static ability, your opponents and permanents your opponents control with hexproof can be the target of spells and abilities you control as though they didn't have hexproof. And minus three exile target creature. Holy cow, that's very powerful. Super powerful. So Kaya is, you know, heavily incentivizing you as the person playing Kaya to try to set up a board state where you get to protect her and exile the second creature. And if you're the opponent, you do not want Kaya sticking around for a second turn. You know, unlike the sagas, a lot of these planeswalkers, because they really only have like downtick, downtick, 
as their options unless you're going to proliferate on them. This mini game doesn't last very long. It's just one turn cycle. Right. So and I think that's why board presence is going to be so critical to this format, because imagine if your opponent plays Kaya and you're ahead on board. It's not that huge of a deal. They're exiling your best creature. But if you still have attacks, that's manageable. You're turning Kaya into consigned to the pit, which is not a great card. Like consigned to the pit, gain whatever, four life, five life, yeah, something Well, you like don't that. need to, you know, she's seven minus is three. You don't need to finish her off for four. You just need to get her. You only need to get her below three. But if you're at parity or behind, you lose the game when your opponent plays Kaya because they're killing your best creature, presumably, and then they're going to kill your second best creature, and then they're going to attack you with their team, and you're just going to be so far behind that it's going to be impossible to come back. So I, I really think it's important to understand that in this set, I, I really strongly think that Battlefield Presence is going to be heavily rewarded. Right. I mean, the difference between six mana kill a thing versus six mana kill a thing with rebound is huge. Yes. Next up is Kiora Behemoth Beckoner. This is two and a Simic hybrid for a seven loyalty planeswalker. My goodness, three mana for seven loyalty. Whenever a creature with power four or greater enters the battlefield under your control, draw a card and the minus one untap target permanent. So the static ability is just exactly Colossal Majesty from M19, right? The three mana enchantment. Mm -hmm. But she can be attacked whereas Colossal Majesty couldn't. And that static ability is the thing you care about. You're really not mostly concerned with the untap ability as the player playing it. So I think as the player playing it, you're incentivized to try and get as much value from this as possible as quickly as you can while protecting it, which sounds like a tall order. And as the player who's facing this down, yeah, this is a high loyalty, but you know, you want to make sure this is off the battlefield before your opponent, you know, ideally... Before they can draw two cards off of it, them drawing one card is fine because they've spent a card on Kiora, but you want to try and get rid of this soon, which is tough because of the high loyalty, but not that tough because it doesn't protect itself in any way. So I'm going to ask you the same thing about this as I did about Davriel and Minerod. Kiora, better or worse than Colossal Majesty? Worse. That's what I think too, except it feels like if you really can set up your defense and you're going off, you know, potentially you can also attack your opponent and then use the minus one to untap your big thing and still have it as a blocker. I think there are board states where Kiora could be powerful than Colossal Majesty, more powerful than Colossal Majesty, but I think it's going to take some work to set it up. I think it'll also depend like if there's an Onaki Ogre in the set, you know, like a three mana four powered thing, because you could set up like, all right, turn five, I play this and then I immediately get the value. Whereas with Colossal Majesty, you had to wait until Colossal Majesty could snowball because, you know, it oh, was it's every... ETB. It's not yeah. even controlling. Oh, this is much worse. I thought this was controlling. I thought this was Colossal Majesty. But you, yeah, it wasn't. We just like talked about it like it was and it's not. But you can set it up where you can draw the card immediately, right? On like turn five or something. Like play this, untap, play Onaki Ogre if that card exists or whatever. But I don't think you're going to get like repeatable advantage out of it. Like it's, it, this is like mentor of the strong, right? That sort of thing. Yeah, this feels like something you're going to be trying to invest a lot of resources in defending that maybe isn't worth defending. This I, I'm not sure. I would guess this is probably worth building around in, a, in some sense. I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's that's just the, the dirtler in me. I think that's the dirtler in you. All right. Moving on to a much better Planeswalker, Nahiri Storm of Stone. This is two Boros Boros hybrid for a six loyalty uncommon Planeswalker. As long as it's your turn, creatures you control have first strike and equip abilities you activate cost one less to activate. Don't care about that so much, but the first strike thing is super relevant for limited. And minus X Nahiri Storm of Stone deals X damage to target tapped creature. So this is probably going to come down kill your opponent's best creature and still stick around and give your team first strike on offense. That seems like a pretty powerful package to me. And as the person playing against Nahiri, you're going to want to get this off the battlefield to prevent your opponent's team from having first strike. Right. So this simultaneously protects itself in theory, if your opponent has attacked already and does a very effective job of pressuring opposing planeswalkers by making combat very difficult. Right, but not totally busted. So this is like an MGC, I think, of, you know, it's going to be a removal spell, and then you're going to have to do some work to get her off the battlefield, but probably not right away, unless you have like a team of two twos, like that's the disaster, right? Mm -hmm. If your opponent plays Nahiri and gets to pick off two of your creatures, and maybe she sticks around, then, you know, you're really going to be up a creek without a paddle. Yeah, agreed. Next, we're looking at Samut 
Tyrant Smasher, or is it Samet? I never know. I say Samet. All right. Two Gruel Gruel for five loyalty walker. Creatures you control have haste. If you remember Ben talking about important keywords for pressuring planeswalkers, haste was one of them. And the minus one is target creature gets plus two plus one and gains haste until end of turn. Scry one. Except sort of not as relevant because Samet doesn't protect herself. And so your opponent's going to have a turn. You're really going to have to have a stable board when you play Samet. Because to take advantage of that haste, she's got to live, but then doesn't really do anything to protect herself. So this is going to be a planeswalker if you don't have a battlefield presence that you're just not going to be able to cast out of your hand. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing the same things over and over again. But I think the thing I like about this is that it allows you, even if your creature already exists on the board, it does give you like that combat trick. Maybe that does enable an attack against an opposing planeswalker, that sort of thing, even though it does leave itself vulnerable. But I would say, you know, already with these uncommon walkers we've seen, like to sort them into two categories of ones that can protect themselves and ones that don't. And I think the ones that protect themselves or make creatures or kill creatures are just better than the ones that don't, because the ones that don't, you have to do way more work to set up a battlefield where you can protect them. A lot of times they're going to be uncastable if you aren't ahead or at parity. Whereas some of the other ones might be castable if you're behind, if they're making a creature or killing a creature or something. And then if your opponent still somehow manages, you've crafted this board state and through removal or evasion or whatever, they manage to kill your planeswalker before it's had a big impact on the game. All of a sudden you just got zero for one. Yeah, for sure. So next up, we've got Vraska Swarms Eminence. This is two Golgari Golgari hybrid for a five loyalty planeswalker. Static ability, whenever a creature you control with death touch deals damage to a player or planeswalker, put a plus one plus one counter on that creature. Minus two, create a one one black assassin creature token with death touch. And whenever this creature deals damage to a planeswalker, destroy that planeswalker. It should be titled Vraska Slayer of Planeswalkers. Yeah, this card looks really good to me. I mean, similar to Tybalt, it's just like four mana make two of these things in theory. But the fact that these things effectively protect her, they do a good job of protecting her. Yeah, they're just one ones, but that's a relevant body with death touch on the board. Right. And are going to be, if your opponent has planeswalkers, they're going to be forced to block it and trade off with something. So it's almost a guaranteed two for one. And then is still sticking around with this one loyalty threatening to do other shenanigans. Yeah, I I like this card a lot. I think this is going, this looks like a, oh boy, once this hits the battlefield, all eyes are on Vraska. Mm -hmm. And last but not least here, we've got Jiang Yanggu Wildcrafter, two and a green for a three loyalty planeswalker, uncommon. Each creature you control with a plus one, plus one counter on it has tap, add one mana of any color as the static ability, and minus one, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. So again, one of the planeswalkers that doesn't protect itself. So this sort of is like a kind of clunky enchantment that you're putting on your creatures. I'm not not a huge fan of Zhang here. Yeah, I mean, this, it can enable some shenanigans in terms of splashing it can enable some shenanigans with proliferate like once you get to put counters on your own creatures then you know you can proliferate not only on back onto this planeswalker but onto those creatures making them bigger so i think the implications here are perhaps a bit more uh complex than just looking at this card and being like yeah it looks a little unexciting but this card asks a lot of the player casting it right you wants you to have a battlefield presence first of all exactly and it wants you to have a way to leverage either the counter you're getting on the creature or the mana ability that you're getting from the planeswalker so you know i think this again we're hearing the same things over and over again do the planeswalkers protect themselves if not you need a board presence and even if you have that board presence what sorts of things are you willing to do to protect that planeswalker before it goes to zero loyalty right and i'm, I'm just sort of looking right next to jiang here in the spoiler and giant growth is in this set yeah so maybe and, and just combat tricks in general are probably going to be going up in value too right because the planeswalkers are going to be some of the time forcing creature combat and then you can sort of anticipate that your opponent's going to make attacks much more so than you would be able to otherwise and maybe nail them with a combat trick yeah well i'm really excited to dive in to the crash course in a couple weeks for this set it looks really interesting it looks super deep as far as gameplay and i'm really interested to see how this my my hot take about battlefield presence being really important works out yeah i I, me too you heard it here first folks all right that seems like a great place for us to wrap things up thank you as always to salty pretzels for our intro and outro music make sure you give that a listen 
please come check us out on the internets. I am at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. M-I-S-T-E-R, not M-R, period. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast, at Lords of Limited. I think there's an imposter running around on MTG Arena that's M-R metronome, because I've had a couple people tweet at me asking if they played me, like some this person was playing standard, as if I would be playing standard. But yeah, Mr. Spelled Out. It might be your biggest fan, too. Also true. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Batman, that is insane. Thank you all so much for signing up on the Patreon. And it's not even new set time. The new, the best time to sign up is when we get to... Uh, hang on. <laughs> Let me try that again. Don't sign up now. <laughs> Anyone who signs up now is an idiot. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. Yeah, and we're also rapidly approaching... I can't talk. <laughs> Yeah, and we're also rapidly, ap- I can't say the word approaching. I keep wanting to say approaching. Good thing you're not editing this week. <laughs> I feel way guiltier. <laughs> <clears throat> Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.